Evan Lazar here, Patriots insider and host of the Patriots Beat podcast here on the CLNS Media Network. As always, our content is powered by our exclusive wagering partners, betonline.ag. Use the promo code CLNS50 for 50% off your welcome deposit. BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts. Edition of the Patriots Beat podcast here on the CLNS Media Podcast Network and on Patriots Press Pass. I'm Evan Lazar, joined as always by Alex Barth and Alex and I were out at Gillette Stadium this morning for Patriots OTAs, the second practice session that was open to the media. Not much to glean from what we saw out there today. Bill Belichick inviting everybody back from the holiday weekend for some walkthroughs, some conditioning. It reminded me of when I used to play in high school, Alex, and uh, big night out the night before, the coach would say, hey, guys, show up to practice tomorrow at 6 a.m. We're, we're running sprints for an hour before school to get that uh, you know, partying, let's put it to you that way, out of the system, right? It felt a little bit like that out there today. You're so cool, Evan. Like, oh my God, I'm so jealous. I'm not saying that I'm the one. You were like the guy in high school. That must have been awesome, man. That's that's Uh, just, let's let's hear it. Let's hear it for high school, Evan, everybody. Very far from the guy. I was the guy on the bench in high school. That that's for sure. Definitely not the guy. My friends were, were more so uh, the the players that actually played and and did things in high school. And I was more the kid that they'd come out over to and and, uh, talk to when they were bored on the sideline when they weren't playing. But that, that was more me anyways uh getting back to where we were going with that alex uh not exactly the most uh intense practice or i I wouldn't say we can glean any real takeaways from what we saw out there today uh but we as you like to say have to do a show and and there are a few things that i thought uh, stood out to me that were interesting but overall what was your take on tuesday Uh, my take is there is no take there there wasn't much to say yeah, yeah, I'd agree. I mean, the only one, Evan, you're going to hate this, but if we want to do an actual football take and not just who yeah. was there and here, who wasn't, you can run routes at half speed. You can kind of block, sort of just, you know, loose hands, whatever. The one thing you can't do is throw a football half speed, right? If you're zipping it, you're yeah. zipping it. That's what it is. Bailey Zappi was zipping the ball around today. Not that not that Mac and and, and Brian Hoyer weren't, but we kind of know what those guys are at this point, right? We hadn't nobody really in New England had seen Bailey Zappi throw in person, at least none of the media until these last couple of practices. He was out there zipping it. And I'm not saying this to take a Bailey Zappi victory lap. I'll have plenty of chances to do those in the future. I'm saying that is that was, you know, Bill Belichick this time of year when he gets asked, uh, you know, to evaluate players or, or evaluate the state of a position or the team or whatever. He one of his catch-alls is, you know, something along the lines of what we're doing now doesn't resemble football. Or later in the year, he'll, you know, when we get into padded practice, he'll say, you know, now what we're doing starting to more resemble football. The closest thing that resembled football today on that practice field was the quarterbacks throwing. And two of the quarterbacks, I think we more or less know at this point what they are. So there you go. There's my takeaway. Bailey Zappi, kid's got a cannon. Okay. So just to build off of this for you for a second here. Just okay. take this question for what you will. What does that mean? Right? Because he's not starting. And I would even hedge that with saying he's never starting for the Patriots unless it, the Ideally, sure completely come off the rails for I, I'm injuries aside, right? Assuming Mac Jones is healthy for the next four years, Bailey Zappi, who's on the four-year contract and Mac has four years remaining on his deal 
if you want to include the fifth year option. Yep. Assuming that the wheels don't completely come off Mac in the next two to three years, he is never going to start for the Patriots. So ideally you have a Jimmy G situation on your hands, I suppose, where you have a really, really good backup who becomes an asset down the line to move. We saw even for the greatest quarterback of all time, some of the friction there with Jimmy Garoppolo towards the end. And I'm not going full Seth Wickersham and saying that he was locking him out of TB12 or anything like that, but there was some, still some very palpable friction between those two guys competition. What does it mean that Bailey Zappi looks solid in these spring practices? Because I will not discount one bit that I think that he's thrown the ball well in the two practices that we've seen, but I, I still am searching for, the 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 what like what does that mean what what why do we care right and and that's what I'm prosing to you that's fair well I think some of it is we want we want to be able to evaluate the draft right yeah and whether or not you think they they should have taken a player from a different position is a fair discussion but you know at the very least did they take a good player if he may not be a player they needed in that moment yeah but I I think at the very least if they took a good player if he becomes somebody I didn't like the Garoppolo pick at the time. And they needed a quarterback that year. I was all in on them taking a quarterback that year. I did not want Garoppolo. And so you needed to see how he played out to evaluate that, right? I don't think it would ever get to the point between Mac and Zappi. If Zappi was good, where you'd, you'd get kind of that, you know, however you want to describe it, uh, negative relationship. Competitive like tension. I think competitive tension is good. I, I yeah. think it's when it becomes personal. I, I yeah. Neither one of them strike me as that kind of guy. I think the, the circumstance is different just because Zappi, Garoppolo was drafted to replace Brady. Max, what, 24? Like, that's not part of yeah. it. Mac even made a point of saying last week, and I thought this was very interesting. He said he is happy to mentor Zappi however he can, and I thought it was very, very interesting. He used the word mentor because that's the word that Ryan Tannehill used, right, when talking about Malik Willis and saying, yeah. I, it's not my job to mentor him. If Mac, who is, I, I I don't want to say he's not the stature of Ryan Tannehill, but Ryan, T he's more embedded. He's more embedded in New England than Tannehill is in Tennessee, right? Yes. But if he's younger. He's not as as decorated as an NFL quarterback at this point. I think he'll certainly get there and pass Tannehill, but he's not right now. It's been one year he's never won a playoff game. If he can say he will mentor Zappi, who also, by the way, is very stylistically similar, which a lot of quarterbacks would see as a threat. That tells me that he kind of understands what's going on here. Now, to, to go back to your original question, what does it mean if Bailey Zappi's good? You kind of hit on it. Assuming Max stays healthy and he clicks and you're going to give him a second contract, although... Him being good, part of it is Mac might not stay healthy and you can yeah. keep your season alive. How yeah. many of these teams, a quarterback goes down, they have a promising playoff roster, but the quarterback goes down, it derails everything. Sure. So I, 2016, Jimmy G, Jacoby Brissett right. carry them to and, and it, look, three and one, right? Three wins. And yeah. look, we know Mac isn't the biggest quarterback. He might not be the most durable. So that is part of the conversation. The other part of the conversation right. is, I think – Drafting a quarterback on day three or really outside of the top 50, it's like cryptocurrency. People who aren't deep in this don't understand what that is, and they don't want to bother with it, and they just see it as an automatic failure. By the way, I'm not a crypto guy at all, but 
the way they explain it to me. The the, the yeah. joke I, I'm trying to make the joke of basically, I it's it, there's no actual defined value, but in theory the value is going to increase. I think you draft Bailey Zappi in the fourth round with the idea that you can trade him for a third round pick or better in three years. Yeah. Right. That's the value. It's an investment. It's an inv- And unless you really get into the nuts and bolts of the draft, like we do in team building, I understand why some people are confused by that. And that's why, you know, again, not a crypto guy, but that's the way they all explain it to me. I don't think they're right. But then again, maybe they don't think I'm right about Bailey Zappi, but that, that, that's, that's what it is. That's what it is. Is if he looks good, then who knows, maybe even in two years, maybe the hype builds enough and he has a couple of good preseason games and a team loses a quarterback in camp. Maybe in two years, somebody calls and overpays for him. Right. That's that. That's that's the why with Bailey Zappi. He's an investment. Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree with you 100% on all of that. I think the other thing that's really unique to this situation that maybe doesn't hold true with every quarterback, and I think that with Mac, he's uniquely programmed in this way because he did come from Alabama where everything is team and everything's about titles and everything is about pulling the rope together is that Mac Jones has the confidence in himself, but also the wherewithal to understand that having a good backup quarterback to himself is only good for the football team. It's only good for the greater good. I think it's in similarly along the lines to what you were saying of even if it's not a season ending injury, even if it's a three week injury, even if it's a month long injury, even if it's a six game injury, that if Bailey Zappi could come in down the line and keep the Patriots above water for that month. And then Mac comes back and now you're still in the playoff hunt because Bailey Zappi went three and one or two and two, and they didn't go. Oh, and four without Mac Jones when he was sitting out, it's really unique for a young quarterback to be as aware of one through 53 as Mac Jones is. Right. And and that's something that I think it stands out to him, his maturity level in general is that he understands that everybody's got a role on the team and that everybody's important to the team in one way or another. And you heard some similar things in the past from Damian Harris as well. So I, I think this is an Alabama thing it is. where Damian Harris understands that having Ramondre Stevenson on the team makes him better. Even though you could look at it and say that Ramondre Stevenson is his replacement at some point down the line Iron sharpens iron. Com- competition is good, but also depth is good. And, and I think that they recognize that they have more wins in their back pocket with Ramondre and with Zappi on the roster than if they didn't have those two guys on the roster. So it's an interesting situation. Obviously, neither one of us is saying that Bailey Zappi is going to make this a competition this summer and this is going to be a quarterback competition like we had last year with Cam and Mack. But it's still an interesting pick nonetheless. Uh, and I think that it will be a very notable topic as we move forward to see how well he can do in training camp. We have seen between Stidham and Mac, we've seen some young quarterbacks recently in camp. So we know what 
the line is right. Like we know, we know what looks good, what doesn't look good and and those types of things with these younger quarterbacks. And we know how our eyes are calibrated to evaluate them a little bit better now because we've been through this a couple of times. So it'll be interesting to see what he looks like. I want to take a second to shout out our friends at betonline.ag. Our partners at betonline continue to be the number one source for all your betting needs and sports info, find all the latest sports developments, including updated odds on the playoffs, fights, and even next season's futures. Bet Online is your continued source for all your sports wagering needs, including live betting in your favorite Vegas casino and poker games. It's super easy to get started, so head to the website today or use your mobile device to join and use our promo code CLNS50 to receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit bet online where the game starts i want to hit on the coaches here for a by second. the way 10 minutes to open the show i'm 10 minutes happy. on bailey zappy to open the show you're not getting that anywhere else people you're that's welcome. how you know it is may 31st right <laughs> that that's how you know that it's the middle of the off season right there i want to talk about the coaching staff for a second i don't want to beat the dead horse of the offensive coaching staff and who's doing what and what does it matter? And is it important? And are we overblowing it? We've done all that multiple times. Bill Belichick was with the offense again, though, today, almost full time with the offense, very, very involved, even during the beginning portion of practice when they were just doing positional drills it wasn't until the very end of that period that he went over to the defense and walked around a little bit on that other field. He was with starting the tight with the tight ends. Then he went over to wide receivers. Then he went back to the quarterbacks and he was in their face, coaching them up, getting involved with the techniques and things like that. So very hands-on bill with the offense. Once again, I actually want to spin this in a different direction though, and not our confidence with the offensive coaching staff. But assuming that this is the way that it's going to go, that Bill Belichick might essentially be his own offensive coordinator for a year uh, just because of the way that things are shaking out. How much confidence do you have in Steve Belichick and Gerard Mayo on the other side of the football? Because you can you can only do so much in one day. And I'm not one to discredit how much Bill Belichick can cram into one work day or one work week. But eventually there's going to be some things that maybe he had his hand in in the past that he doesn't have his hand in this year because of how much responsibility he's taking on in the offense. So I think the domino effect of this is important as well, because today in practice, I thought it was very notable how much Steve and Gerard Mayo basically had to lead the defense all by themselves without Bill. And Bill is on the complete other side of the complex. What is your confidence level in that brain trust that battery right now on defense because this is year four now with Steve and Gerard being co-defensive coordinators more or less and Steve calling the play since 2019 so we're at the point now where experience they have some they they have some experience and they should probably be pretty good at this by now yeah so first off I, I I'm pretty confident in those guys I I'm a big fan of Gerard Mayo that's not a secret I've said he should be a head coach. I'm kind of surprised he's not a head coach at this point. I think if you don't think Bill's as involved on defense as he was in the past, I think you're being naive. I don't think, I I think he's just the kind of guy where him being more involved on offense doesn't mean he's going to be less involved on defense. And you you heard, how is he going to do that though? Like sleep, sleep less, eat during meetings. I don't know. Like, 
you, you, we heard, yeah. we heard all the assistant coaches talk about it. When we talked to him a few weeks ago. Bill has his hand in everything. I, I don't remember if it was I have Steve no or doubt Gerard that he who has, said that. I have no doubt that he has his hand in everything and will have his hand in everything. But at the end of the day, 24 hours a day is 24 hours a day. That's all you got, right? You can't make more hours in a day. Yeah, yeah. There's that saying, like, you and Beyonce both have 24 hours in the day. Blah, right. Blah, blah, whatever. But, like, I don't want to I don't want to be this cringe, but, like, look at me. I'm covering the Celtics now. I'm, I'm like, pseudo on that beat, and I'm still covering the Patriots. I'm still on wow, the show. you brought right? on me at the beginning of the show. For... I know. So that's why wow. I felt like I could because you had a wow. moment like that, too. My point is, like, he may have just said, I got to really buckle down and grind this year. That, yeah. that it may have been as simple as that, you know, I, especially if things, it, and look, these are just what, this is four hours over the course of two practices from how many hours they've been together so far, how many hours they'll be together in the future. It may be something where it's a, it's a teaching camp right now. That's what Bill likes to say. Yeah. It's a teaching camp. It's not an evaluation camp. He feels like his teaching skills are more needed on the offensive side of the ball. They have that more veterans on that defensive side. They've got Devin McCourty over there. They've got, I think we can kind of include Juwan Bentley as one of these guys at the second level now as a leader. They got Lawrence Guy, Dietrich Wise up front, right? Bill may feel like I'm more needed on the offensive side of the ball at this portion. Like, let me ask you this. Would you be surprised? And, and let's say we got, what, four more spring practices, right? Let's say they're all the same way. Bill's with the offense. Nothing changes in that regard. Would you be surprised if then we go out for camp in late July and Bill's all of a sudden with the defense primarily? I could see it. No, I'm not saying it's definitely going to happen, but I I don't think he might be more involved in the offense. I don't think he's going to be any less involved with the defense. He might be putting more on his plate. And if you're concerned with him putting more on his plate overall, that's a conversation to have. I don't think he's abandoning the defense big picture. Maybe on a day-to-day basis, it's a little less, but you know, Gerard Mayo can teach some of these younger linebackers about, you know, first step off the ball or, uh, you know, they have the defensive backs coaches can, can work with the secondary on their back pedal or turning their hips or whatever. He'll come in when they get down to the, the, the meat and potatoes of it. Yeah, I, no, I definitely don't think he's abandoning defense by any means. And you could be right that the little techniques here and there and some of the things that they need to do with this offense is a little bit more pressing for them in terms of having Bill Belichick in that, in that huddle instead of the other huddle. I think the interesting thing about it though, is to me, if this is the way that it's going to go the rest of the year is Bill Belichick is going to have to be essentially a quality control coach on the defense side of the ball, where he comes in with the game plan during the week and does some of the bigger picture stuff, right? He's not going to necessarily have the time. If he's spending this much time with the offense at, at practice, he's not going to have the time necessarily to go over and break down hand technique with Christian Barmore, right. And say, Oh, your hand needs to be here instead of there or whatever. We've seen him do, do the type of stuff like that in the past is, is my point is we've seen him get really down in the weeds and, start to actually coach these guys up on little nuances all the time out at practice. If he doesn't have the time necessarily to do that, then I I do think you have to put some trust in your lieutenants and look at Steve Belichick and Gerard Mayo and say, look, you guys are going into year four, year five of basically running the show. Uh, You're not the defensive coordinator yet, but you might as well be the de facto co-DCs at this point. I have to trust you guys a little bit more this year and and they should be ready for that. They should be ready to take that on. Absolutely. It's, it's time for both of them. And you mentioned Gerard Mayo's ability and his interviews that he's had for head coaching jobs in the past. What a great opportunity because if the media coverage 
of this whole situation is that Bill Belichick is so hands-on with the offense. And we see him on the sideline really huddling more with offense or even calling plays for the offense. So we heard some people float around at times this spring, then they're going to get a lot more credit as the assistant coaches, Gerard Mayo and Steve Belichick, if that defense plays well. So it's going to be interesting to see. I just think that a lot is made out of how much do we trust Joe judge? How much do we trust Matt Patricia? But I, I think we also need to talk about how this is going to impact the other side of the ball and the potential that Steve Belichick and Gerard Mayo are going to have even more on their plate than what they've had in the past. And I, quite frankly, I think they're ready for it. I do. But uh, we'll see what ends up happening there. A couple of attendance notes here. Ronnie Perkins was back at practice today. That was good to see Adrian Phillips, Lawrence Guy. Uh, they were back at practice as well. Nick Folk was there kicking some field goals. Not much to, again, not much to glean in terms of competitive reps from Tuesday's practice. But the two guys that I think stood out in that defense as well to keep it on that side of the ball, Alex, uh, Josh Uche before practice, Bill Belichick agreeing with Steve Belichick that he's a huge part of their defense. And then obviously seeing Ronnie Perkins back in the spring as well, playing some outside linebacker and doing what you would expect him to do on the end of the line in a two point stance. But what did you make of Bill Belichick's comments this morning about Josh Uche? It seems like between Uche and I would say Cam McGrone, those two guys have gotten the most verbal bouquets from the coaching staff to say these guys are going to be good players for us and, and take some of that responsibility from Hightower and Collins and Van Noy. Yeah, I'm not going to read into that. I'm just not. It's real easy for Bill to say that it, it, until we see it on the field. I just, he's hyped up guy. He was specifically asked about Josh Uche. It's one thing if, you know, Hey Bill, what do you think of linebacker group? And then he, you know, brings yeah. up Josh Uche's name on his own. Oh, Josh Uche is a big part of what we do. Every player is a big part of what they do. So. I know it's a wet blanket answer. I'm being you. I'm hating fun. I'm not going to, I, so Bill knows he's still on the roster. That's the takeaway. Like when we, when we get to camp and they're actually in, you know, first team, second team, third team, and he's in full pads flying off the edge. I'm not saying he can't be either. Like I like Josh Uche as a player. I think he should be a big part of what they do this year. I don't feel any different before or after Bill Belichick saying that though. I have a trouble buying in any Uche stock at this point because this dates all the way back to his days at Michigan where spring practices, beginning of camp, this guy looks like he's going to be an absolute stud. And you hear so much buzz about Josh Uche and he's coming on and his explosiveness and his speed off the edge and his playmaking ability near the line of scrimmage, which all flash all the time consistently when he is out there, we see it, we've seen it before. And yet by the, end of the season you look at Josh Uche and he's been on the field for 20% of the snaps and he's basically done nothing for two months right like that's just the book on Uche going all the way back to college so until we actually see something from Josh Uche consistently where he's a consistent constant contributor to the defense for an entire season I have a really tough time getting too hyped about anything that happens with Josh Uche in the spring because we've we've seen this movie before we've been down this road before right. with Josh Uche and, and well, not just with him, with this together. team, with that position, Chase Winovich, Anthony yeah. Jennings, right? It's it's the day two edge guy. Yeah, yep, that's absolutely true. And I I think that you know in the chat talking about how he's too small to play early down three four outside linebacker. I, I do think that there is a plan in place or a hope in place that Uche can maybe develop off the ball 
and play some inside linebacker on first down and then move on to the line of scrimmage once we get into pass rushing situations. But like Belichick said today, comparing him to Dante Hightower is let's not go there, right? You know, it's a little bit early and a little bit, I don't know, just getting too hyped up about Josh Uche to be saying, oh, he's going to have this role where he's going to play on, he's going to play off the line, he's going to play 80% of the defensive snaps because they're going to move him around. Let's wait and see. Let's let's let him put it all together before we get that excited about it. Let's move back over to the offense. I want to talk about wide receivers because I think that this is another topic that people love to talk about, first of all, love to listen to us talk about. But I, I find this really fascinating what the Patriots are going to do at the wide receiver position because we've seen a clear line of demarcation in these first two practices. The first top four guys – Parker, Bourne, Myers, Aguilar, the team is treating that for some as a different core, right? Like they're, they're in a different group. And then it seems like in so many drills, we see those four and then we see everybody else. And when I mean everybody else, I include Tyquan Thornton, Trey Nixon, you know, Malcolm Perry, you know, all those guys are in that every, everybody else category. And, And then there's that foursome. But the one guy I wanted to highlight out of that group. And we've talked about this off the air a lot, Alex is Nelson Aguilar, who right now, maybe they're just giving the reps to Devonte Parker because he's new to the offense and he's learning. And this is the time that they need to give him those reps, but he is getting out repped pretty significantly with the other starters uh, by Devonte Parker. And when you look at Aguilar's cap hit 14.9 million, You look at the fact that they do need to make some cap space or create some cap space to operate the rest of the season. They can save $9 million by trading him. They can save $4 million against the cap by releasing him. They do have dead money, but they do create some cap space by cutting him in the short term. That's another interesting thing, right? If you could just walk away from Nelson Aguilar and save 4 million bucks, but I think the, the thing that needs to happen in order to make Aguilar expendable is obviously Tyquan Thornton, who we talked to right. today and having him pop in camp and giving you that backup to Devonte Parker. But with this wide receiver group, it's how do you see it shaking out right now? And what's your view on it? Because it does seem like that top three of Parker Bourne, and Myers, they're hoping they're going to get a lot of snaps out of those guys this year, which could make a guy like Aguilar the odd man out here. I guess I I still think they're going to keep all of them. I still think on one hand they want the rotation, on the other hand they they want depth at that position because you lose somebody from that group and then what are you doing? Right? Yeah. Then we're all going to, you know, they trade Nelson Aguilar and then, you know, Devontae Parker who we know his injury history gets hurt week 1, we're all going to be talking about oh, Aguilar, Aguilar, Aguilar. So I I think they're going to stick with that group. Again, I I think it's also a thing where it's early, right? And I, I agree with you Parker does need the reps. I, I still think those four, you need four good receivers to get through a season. And and they have those four. Like, Nikhil Harry's out of this, right? Yeah. Uh, I, I think Christian Wilkerson, as high as I was on him last year, like maybe he makes a team as a special teams guy. I don't think he's really a major factor at wide receiver. Trey Nixon would have been cool, but, you know, we'll see what he does in camp. But it feels like he's got a long way to go. Um, yeah, I so I, I think they stick with those four guys. Unless, again, like you said, Thornton starts really coming on strong here. And then it kind of becomes what happened last year with Sony Michelle and Ramondre Stevenson, where Ramondre had such a good camp. They had to get him on the field. It made Sony Michelle expendable. They moved him on the last year of his deal. 
Like to me, that that's yeah. what has to happen for them to move on from Aguilar's Thornton has to have that kind of summer. It's really tough to see them move on from Aguilar unless Thornton is really coming on because right. you cannot count on Devonte Parker for it to play the nope. entire season. Can't count on him. And I think the worst part of the Devonte Parker experience, speaking to some people down in Miami reporters, uh, especially down in Miami is he always comes out of the gate hot. He always starts the season really strong. And the only year, of course, as we all remember, 2019 is the only year where he actually ended on a high note as well with that game against Stephon Gilmore in the season finale. But for the most part with Devontae Parker, he's great in September. He's a great September player. And then a hamstring or an ankle or something, usually the hamstring pops up on the injury report. And then he's inconsistent throughout the rest of the year. They need to have a reliable backup plan for Devontae Parker. And if Tyquan Thornton's not ready, then Nelson Aguilar is going to be that guy. But there's been a lot of reps this spring that we have seen where the first group is that Board Myers Parker group, and then Aguilar comes in with the second group, right? And and so it'll be interesting to see in terms of money, that's not a very good investment for your fourth wide receiver, right? Paying your fourth right. wide receiver. million against the cap is not very good roster management at that position. So if they feel like Tyquan Thornton can do it and they feel like maybe Trey Nixon or Christian Wilkerson or Malcolm Perry can be the fifth guy, then maybe that opens that door. We've talked a little bit about Isaiah Wynn potentially getting moved due to the cap and and due to his uh, no-show so far in the spring. Aguilar is obviously out there. He's doing all the right things. But I think that if we're going to talk about Wynn potentially being a, a cap casualty slash no long-term future with the team, Aguilar somewhat fits in that category as well. Are you still there with Wynn before we move on to the next wide receiver here I want to bring up? Or oh, has your opinion changed on Isaiah Wynn's situation at all? Because he wasn't out there again today. What was I don't remember. What was my opinion last time? <laughs> I don't remember either. So what is your opinion? Well, because I wanted to draft a tackle and then trade him during the draft, and that obviously didn't happen. Um, I, if they're going to play Trent on the left side, and they either feel confident enough to move her uh, own Wenu to right, or or play Haran on the right side, then I'm all for it. The, yeah. Then I'm all for it. If they are just trading him to trade him, and you create a mess up front, it's not worth it at all. Because I still think he's a starting caliber tackle. He's not a star, but I think he's starting caliber when he's on the field. The injury issues are part of it too. You know, if, if they feel good with Brown and Haran as their tackles and, and they feel like they can, you know, there's not going to be that much of a difference or, or any difference, then I'm all for it. If Justin Haran's not ready or Trent Brown can't play the left side anymore or whatever it is, and they're going to have to, you know, rig it weird and you're getting Stuber involved or William Sherman or whatever, then no, then you don't force it. It's not worth it. Yeah, I'm with you on that one. I think that that sums that up. One more wide receiver I wanted to talk about was Tyquan Thornton because we did talk to him today. I thought his best quote looking back on what he said at the press conference today was when he said, this is his body type, right? He's not going to be a 225-pound receiver. He's been skinny his entire life or thin, I think, is the word that he used uh, that yeah. his entire life. And he is what he is for the most part. Now, he, he told me that he wants to get stronger not bigger right he doesn't right. want to bulk up he wants to get stronger standing six feet apart from him today though while he was talking at the podium this is a very slender dude like this guy is definitely small now i think the pushback that we get all the time 
in the comments and things like that when we talk about uh, Taekwon Thornton, his his size is, well, what about Devontae Smith? What about Jamison Williams, right? And, and my rebuttal to that is, well, first of all, Devontae Smith had a Heisman Trophy winning season in 2019 that might have been the best college football season ever for a wide receiver. So mm, Michael Crabtree, but continue. It's in the top three, right? It's it's top three or top five best college football. It's the best outside of Oklahoma State. Sure. Dez was really good, too. Yeah, he was. Or sorry, Texas Tech. Wait. Outside of the Big 12, continue. Yeah, because Calvin Johnson had a few monster seasons there. He did, which was weird because that was a triple option offense. I never got that. Yeah. I wasn't watching college football time. Anyway. Can we call it top five? Let's call it top five. We can. I just, I won't, I'm not going to, watching Michael Crabtree at Texas Tech was special. We can reminisce on that on another show, but that dude in college was just unstoppable. Yeah. Aside from the production, let's also not forget that in the draft, in his rookie season and coming into the NFL, everybody had concerns about Devontae Smith's size. Right. Everybody. That was like the big knock on him. He didn't want to run. He didn't want to test because people kind of thought he might not break four or five at his size. And that was going to be a real red flag for teams. He had major, major size red flag. So it's not like we don't talk about it with Devontae Smith. He's just not a Patriot. So you don't talk about it on this show, but everybody has concerns about his frame. No, I'll say I've had, I had people actually ask me on DMs, why didn't we, as in like Boston media, why didn't Boston media talk about Devontae Smith leading up to the draft the same way we're talking about Tyquan Thornton? The Patriots were never going to draft Devontae Smith. Right. That was never on the table. He was a top 10 pick at least. Like they would have had to move up significantly. It's the same reason that we didn't discuss, you know, the pros and cons of like Derek Stingley or Sauce Gardner, right? We, why would we do that? It's a waste yeah. of time. It wasn't going to be a factor. So no, this this was a real narrative with Devonta Smith. It, it it really was. Yeah, and so with Jamison Williams, I think that there is, and I would also put in that Jamison Williams care category as well. Chris Olave, a lot of people are concerned about his size too, right? Like these are all players that had size red flags. So I don't necessarily agree with the notion that the only person that gets slighted for his slight frame is Taekwon Thornton. Like that's definitely not true. Like all these guys get talked about and you have concerns about their size and their ability to handle physical coverage and get off press and win at the top of the route with through contact. And all these guys have those concerns, but with Taekwon Thornton to relate this back to the Patriots, what, what did your what was your biggest takeaway i guess from what you heard out of him today and uh, where's your where, do you think he can contribute in year one i think is the best way to put it what where do you kind of stand in terms of his ability to contribute in any sort of significant way as a rookie so i i loved the quote he gave you about you know i'm not trying to get bigger i'm trying to get stronger because yeah i think it's six three he's in terms of the like absorbing hits and all of that I think he'll be okay if he puts some muscle on. It's more just about how is he getting off press? How is he hand fighting down the field? You know, contested catch, hands catching, all that. Ripping the ball away from defensive backs. Ball security, holding on to the ball himself. You know, that to me is more the issue. It's not that he weighs whatever it is, 181 pounds. It's it's the play strength. And that can come along. I don't necessarily think he needs to get big. Like people, somebody in my mentions was like, give him five peanut butter sandwiches a day. It's not that kind of thing. It's getting in the weight room. That's what it is. It's getting in the weight room. And it, it, this he's an extreme example, but this is the case for most guys coming out of college. It takes a full season to get up to an NFL body. 
That being said, can he contribute in year one? I I am a little hesitant on that. Yeah. I am a little hesitant. I think he really does need to put some muscle on, put some strength on for him to get there. I think he can have a role. I don't know that he's, you know, I think you're looking at probably 30, 35% usage rate, ideally for him. Uh, scheme touches, and here we go down the scheme touch route again. I know that's terrifying with the yeah. Patriots, but scheme touches, packages, things like that, or, you know, you have him in a third and long package where you just put him out there on the boundary and see if he can just run by somebody, you know, as simple as that. I don't think that's his role forever. I think once he gets a full off season, the weight program, I think there's a, a good chance we're sitting here this time next year, leading off the show by, yeah, well, they didn't do much football today, but Tyquan Thornton looks swole as hell, right? Yeah. I think there's a good chance we get to that point, but he needs a year to get in the lab and, and get in the gym and get all that going. So I do think he could be more situational this year, but I don't think that's a knock on him long-term. Yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it. I don't have any real concerns yet because we haven't really seen any football yet to have real concerns right. about his long-term outlook. But in terms of the short-term and his rookie season, between the fact that he definitely needs to fill out his frame and, and figure out how to be a little bit bigger and a little bit more muscular, as he put it, and secondly – he needs to definitely develop his route tree some more. You know, they were what he was, they were asking him to do at Baylor was relatively simple. And really, he was a guy that won on two or three different routes consistently, but wasn't exactly a full route tree kind of dude. So if they're going to get him into a significant contributor down the line, like an a thousand yard receiver type guy down the line, then he's still got a ways to go in those two departments before I think that they can put him out there and right. give him the volume to be a real productive guy in the NFL. Well, that was one of the things I liked about his tape coming out was I thought he was less limited last year, right? I thought they started to expand his route tree last year. So he's somebody who's who comes in kind of already in that process. And there's a big difference between doing it in college and doing it in the NFL, but when he was at Baylor, the first couple of years there, it was either go or go, stop, go, or out. That was pretty much his whole route tree. They didn't, he, he didn't operate between the numbers at all. And I thought they started doing that a little more last year. It, was, it wasn't anything complicated. It was mostly just slants and in cuts. But he started to operate between the numbers a little more. So I, I, that is a part of his game, too, that needs to grow. But I'm a lot more confident in that part of his game coming forwards because – Again, he did it last year at Baylor. They gave him more to do. They put more on his plate. They expanded his route tree. Not significantly, but they did, and he handled it. And if he is going to be a redshirt player, you can kind of lean into that, and you don't have to give him, you know, the whole route tree, the zero through nine this year. You can give him half of what you want him to do this year while he's putting on that muscle, and then you introduce the second half next year, and then you complete it over two years. So I yeah. think that's kind of his situation. By the way, somebody put numbers in the chat. For uh, for Tyquan Thornton as a rookie, no, uh, I, I I'm just gonna pull these up really quick. Hypothetically, 50, 57. No, I'm I'm going slightly different. I think these are below what that person said. Okay, All right, so they're a little bit of both. Fifty-seven five ninety-eight four. Do you think that's realistic? No, no. I don't think I I don't think the thirty-six six forty-five and four is realistic either. I don't know where. I can't see the other comment. Maybe you can pull it up. No, but. no, 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 no. These are these are different numbers. Let me ask you this: in two years, fifty-seven five ninety-eight four, and it, he's probably going to have a higher yards per reception given the way he plays the game. But let's say he hits one of those benchmarks, fifty-seven or five ninety-eight. You think he hits one of those benchmarks in the next two years? Maybe the yards, because if he averages nineteen yards a catch, then maybe he can get up there with the yards. But that's fair. 
that's very, very good production. You know, that, that, right. that, that's good production for a second year wide. Well, I'm not sure. Let, let me ask you this, and then I'll give you what the numbers are. Uh, 12, 105, 2. Is that realistic? I think that's underselling them a little bit. I think I'll okay. go over that. 33, 309, 2. I still think I think the problem I'm having is with the catches, right? 33 catches is a decent yeah. amount. That's a third wide receiver workload. You know, maybe it's like a third or slash fourth, right? Like it's kind of like right. a, a guy that plays a little bit too much in my mind. 30 balls is not anything to sniff at for like a depth wide receiver. That's a pretty good amount of catches. Okay. So, so the, the numbers I just gave you 57, 598, four, that's Nikhil Harry's career numbers. Oh boy. 12 105 2 is him as a rookie. 33 309 2 is his only full season. So maybe he can match that full season if he plays. But I still think 33 catches and a lot of those catches with Nikhil Harry are screens and manual. So that's the thing. Touches, it, it, right? it, it's an imperfect comparison because his yards per catch should be significantly higher than that. Yeah. How about actually let me give you Nikhil last year? Because this I think is more more in the ballpark. 12 184. That might be his rookie season. Yeah. And look, that's a I know when I say that people are going to be like, oh my God, this guy's only going to go for 184 yards as a rookie. But look, I, I think that's where we're at with the depth, with the way he needs to develop. And he has a long ways to go in my opinion, in terms of development and things like that. And to me, the biggest thing with Tyquan Thornton's size and where we're talking about with that, with his development is you often get asked, okay, well, what's the biggest difference between Tyree Kill and Philip Dorsett, right? Both guys run a 4-2 something, right? So why is one guy a perennial Pro Bowl receiver and the other guy was a third receiver at best and, and didn't really pan out and didn't have the best career? It's the ability to not get run off the route down the field, right? It's to be able to hail kind of handle contact, finish through contact and really be a physical player. Even if you're not like physical in the sense of Devonte Parker and Nikhil Harry, it's, it's about being able to run through contact and then get up the field and allow your strides and your speed to take over because jams contact in the first five yards, that stuff doesn't slow you down. That doesn't anchor you from going right. up the field. That's the biggest difference between Hill is a physical presence. Like he can get off the line. Uh, he can get into you. He can handle physicality down the field. He can fight off physicality down the field. And that allows him to run away from people. Guys like Philip Dorsett or, you know, other players like that that have had great speed but have struggled in the NFL. The main reason why they struggle is because of physicality. And I think with Taekwon, that's the concern. It's not necessarily about his long-term outlook in that respect, but as a rookie, keeping it there is, is he going to be able to run through people? Is he going to be able to finish through contact? Is he going to be able to use his speed to the best of his ability without being inhibited by the speed bumps in front of him? And and I I don't know if he's going to get there right away as a rookie. I think that that might be a developmental thing that we'll see in year two, three, four. Could he be a guy that stretches the field right away? Yeah. I think he can stretch the field right away, but I don't know if he's going to necessarily be somebody that's going to have a high volume of catches until he develops his frame a little bit more. Sure. Again, the only reason I brought the Nikhil Harry numbers up is because they're going to get brought up one way or the other. They're going to get brought up. So I just, sure. Little little blind taste test there. All right. So on Thursday's show, Alex and I are going to do a Q and a, I saw a lot of 
questions or situations posed and stuff like that in the chat today. So come back on Thursday afternoon and we'll answer all of your questions. I don't want to get too bogged down in the minutia of some of these uh, more schematic questions. So if you have them, come back on Thursday. Uh, we'll talk about them then. We're going to keep this one uh, relatively uh, tight to the hour. So now's the time of the, I think our favorite time of the show this time of year, right? We get to get in. <laughs> to the Boston Sports Minute and talk about well, look, the Boston Celtics, Alex. Bill got Bill got like four Celtics questions at his presser today before he got a Patriots question. He did. He did. So, Y'all so, want to stop asking about the assistant coaches. We stopped asking him about the Patriots all, in football altogether. We, we crossed sports today at, at Bill Belichick's press conference at Felger and Maznodo. The Boston Celtics in the NBA Finals – Let's start a little bit with Game 7 because we haven't been on since Game 7 happened and we can kind of reminisce about that game and then we can get into the matchup and if we like it or hate it against the Warriors. But Game 7 certainly felt like getting a monkey off the back, right? You know, they finally got over the hump. Uh, They almost threw it away at the end, certainly. They almost collapsed at the end, but they were able to just get enough out of that last two minutes to be able to hold off Miami a wire to wire victory. And I think a lot is getting caught up in that last minute or two for the Celtics, but they never trailed in game seven on the road against Miami, clearly the superior team in that game on Sunday night. And it's great to see the whole core celebrate like that and finally get over the hump and finally exercise those demons in the conference finals for Horford and Tate and Smart and Brown group they deserve to get here and i feel a little bit bad that uh Ime Adoka is not getting his his credit or his kudos right now i feel like he deserves a little bit more love in this run as well but what were your thoughts on game seven and, and the celtics making the finals to begin with yeah i mean wow it, I, I, it's funny you know what this team's legacy is going to be it's it's going to be uh, every time a team starts, whether it's locally or in the NBA or whatever, like yeah. every time a team starts off poorly, well, remember the 22 Celtics, right. even if they don't win the title, I think just getting to the finals, like remember the 22 Celtics, they were yeah. the 11th seed in January and they were power ranked like 25th or something like that or whatever. Right. right? And then, you know, look what they did and it's not going to happen. It's not, I know the, the nationals did it a couple of years ago. I think it was 2019 yeah. when they won it, they were well under 500 around this time of the year, but it's it, it's one of the more improbable title runs I can I can remember seeing. I think it's cool because in an era where the NBA is very much just copy and paste, you know, one mold of team building had success and everybody followed it. I think the Celtics very much went against the grain and not entirely by choice. They wanted to do the superstar thing. Kyrie Irving was here. Uh, Danny Ainge wanted Anthony Davis here. They wanted to go that route. They ultimately couldn't. But you have a team that was built through the draft. You have a team that's predicated on defense. You have a team where, you know, when they're healthy, one of their best players is a center. You don't see that in the NBA anymore. You just don't. So I'm a big fan of, you know, not not just that I'm like a a Celtics fan and they've gotten to this point, but as somebody who appreciates the team building elements of sports and old school NBA basketball, uh, and they're not truly old school, the Celtics, but there's some, they're not as new agey as some of these other teams, right? Uh, I, I I love it for the NBA that the Celtics got this far and they're going to be in the finals. And, and and just to touch on the last thing you said there, Ime Udoka, for some reason, Brad Stevens is getting credit for this, like as a coach. Yeah. Credit yeah, him as the like GM Danny all you Ingen want. Is getting more credit for this than Ime right. Udoka. No, get, 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 
and people are bringing up Dan Duquette, and people are bringing up Bill Parcells. Right, right. Uh, yeah, okay, he drafted Tatum, Brown, and Smart, which a lot of people, if you don't like Marcus Smart, you don't get to give Danny Ainge credit. You don't. That's just the reality of it, because you wanted him traded, and Danny Ainge didn't trade him. Um, give Brad credit as a GM. I think the Derek White trade was a huge turning point. I think yeah. getting, to, even though he's not a bad player, I just think in terms of fit, getting Dennis Schroeder off the roster was a big turning point. You look at what that did for their second unit. You look at how that tightened up the rotation. I think that was a big move, but Ime Udoka is a top three reason the Celtics are in the NBA finals right now. And, his and that's in a, his ability to motivate them and to have them bounce back and continue to be mentally tough through some of the adversity that they've hit is it, it's impressive, right? And that's like, what that's Brad couldn't do. Yeah. That's what Brad couldn't do. And by the way, too, even beyond that, I, they've had to reinvent themselves multiple times, not just during the, the regular season, but in the playoffs. Yeah. Right. The, the team we're watching now is not the same team that beat the Nets. They look yeah. different strategically. They've changed things. He's handled all that in a league where a lot of people say coaching is the least impactful in the NBA of any of the four major leagues. And I think there's some truth to that. I, I think in baseball, you can make an argument, especially now with the freaking nerds, you know, the, like Kevin Cash doesn't even run the race. He's, he's a figure. Yeah. But in a league where people tend to diminish the impact of coaching, Ime Udoka is leaving his stamp on this team and on this season. So, uh, so a ton of credit to Ime Udoka. Yeah, it's funny because you look at the other bench now, the Warriors, and this, although Mark Jackson never went into the front office and didn't run the, the Warriors from that perspective, it, it does have a little bit of a Mark Jackson, Steve Kerr thing, right? Where, or, you know, uh, Doug Collins, Phil Jackson with the Bulls back in the day. Like, sometimes you just need a different voice in that locker right. room to get what you need out of the guys. And Ima Odoka has just done that 110%. And the Celtics have had so many reasons. And I got so much crap on Sunday night for my tweet back in January where I said that, the this, you know, we should stop defending the Celtics because of how bad they were playing. And the Celtics, starting then, had every reason from that point on to let go of the rope, right? Like, and not just let go of the rope for the season, but also unravel as a core and come apart as a core from Smart, Brown, and Tatum in particular. That could that was a crossroads, right? January 6th against New York when they blow the 25-point lead and lose on the buzzer beater. That easily could have gone the other way where that group decides to come apart and says – we're not meant to play together and somebody's requesting to trade or somebody gets moved at the deadline. Like that definitely could have gone that direction. And I, I really think that it was Ime Doka who deserves the most credit for keeping that group together. Then you get into the buck series and down three, two game six on the road. You go in two in a row, you have game seven at on the road against Miami after losing a chance to go to the finals at home in game six. So many bumps along the way and this group has just continued uh, to mow through them again I, I know we're not supposed to cross sports but you mentioned the nationals that team was a little bit similar yeah i think the team that this comparison that you need to go with i'm sure you know where i'm going with this alex the 2001 patriots yeah there's some of that there pomp for this celtics team 2001 patriots i just pulled it up so i, I get this right they're one and three in the first month of the season. Yeah. They're five and five in week 10 after they lose to the Rams, who they obviously end up beating in the Super Bowl. So they're five and five in, on Thanksgiving. They beat New Orleans 
on Thanksgiving or on the Sunday of Thanksgiving week. And that point on, they did not lose another game. And they went all the way to uh, the Super Bowl and won the Super Bowl. You put also into that category that the Warriors are kind of like the Rams, right? Like the Warriors are that running. The greatest show on hardwood. Yeah, the greatest show on hardwood. Uh, they've won it before, just like the Rams have won it the year before. They 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 have a lot of parallels there as well, and it's interesting as a Patriots uh, centric show here to make that comparison. Now, there's not a great Brady in this category. I guess Jason Tatum is the star, so, so he's kind of the Brady, but he's been in the league for a couple you, of years now, so it's not. You a- have- so to make this comparison, you have to look at it through a different lens. I, I think we a lot of the times look at – and this goes to a bigger thing I have about the 2001 Patriots, by the way. I've been looking for an excuse to bring this up on the show. There you go. We look at the 2001 Patriots as the genesis, as the beginning. In a lot of ways, they are. And even when we go further back, we talk about 2000 as a building block. Yeah. If you want to make this comparison, you have to look at 2001 not as the beginning – of that run, but as the fulfillment of a run and then three and four, you kind of have to put three and four out, right? Cause we don't know that the Celtics are going to win three and four years. We don't know if they're going to win one, but when you look at that 2001 team and you mentioned Brady, right? And everybody hooks that on Brady and Antoine Smith was a big part of that team. And they rebuilt the offensive line. That's not the comp here. The comp is it. And by the way, it, as much as I love Tom Brady and we all love Tom Brady, that team won on defense. Yeah, you one Patriots, one on defense. Well, that's why that well, also helps with this comp, right? So that's where I'm getting. So yeah. look at look at the look at where that defense came from. Brewski, Law, Malloy, McGinnis, Ted Johnson, right? A lot of these guys, they all they were on the '96 team. Yeah, that went to the Super Bowl and lost. You look at it; they went to the Super Bowl in '96. They made the playoffs again in '97 and '98, and then they had the two years where they didn't make the playoffs, and then a one happened, right? That's that's this Celtics team. Yeah, it's not a one oh three oh four, at least not yet. It's they're the they're the late nineties to the two thousand one Patriots. This is the end of it, right? Because they got to the conference finals a couple of times. They made those. They have that experience now. That postseason experience. They've gotten sent home with that bad taste in their, their mouth. It started to look stale, which it did for the Patriots in ninety nine and two thousand. And Carroll, they move on from Pete Carroll, right? And then the new coach comes in. Who by the you know the new coach comes in. And then all of a sudden they get this second win, the second life, all that experience starts coming back to them. I, I had Ted Johnson tell me a bunch this year when I was on with him talking about how important those playoff losses were to them. Like yeah. that knowledge as they move forward, that's the comp. That's yeah. where the comp comes in. You got to, you got to go back to the 96 Patriots. And those are like, those are basically the bridgey Celtics. The 96 Patriots are the bridgey Celtics. And, and that that's where you make the comp to Oh one. It's not a Brady thing. It's not that it's this is oh one was really the fulfillment of that core. That's what it would have been if it if the run ended there, if they win that one and that's that. That's the fulfillment of that core. That's what that storyline is. It got overshadowed because of what happened next. And nobody should expect the Celtics to win three out of four the next four, because that's not a fair expectation of any team under any circumstance. That run was so improbable what the Patriots did. But that that's the comparison there. You got to go back to 96. I love it. I think that whole thing really is exactly what it is. You know, you have the loss 
in Game 7 against Cleveland and then the loss to Miami in the bubble in the Eastern Conference Finals, that's just like those Patriots teams from 96 to 98, right? right? Those were the learning experiences, and now they're over the hump. Uh, I really love that comparison. And uh, let's uh, wrap it up on the Warriors and, and the little finals preview here. We'll talk a lot about it, a little bit about it on Thursday as well uh, on that, on our Thursday show. But I think the one thing that I actually do like for the Celtics, other than the schematics and the way that they match up, which I think is favorable uh, pretty well in terms of their length and their athleticism and their ability to switch everything and put Marcus Smart on Steph Curry and, all those types of things. I, I think the schematics and the X's and O's, the Celtics have a path here to beat the Warriors. The other thing that I love is, is that this nationally is about the Warriors. Like this is not the Celtics are, we are kind of in this local Boston bubble that all we hear about is the Celtics, but you turn on ESPN right now or FS1, it's about Steph Curry's legacy, the Warriors, do they need Kevin Durant to win titles? Like all that type of stuff. So in my mind, as much as this is a culmination of a lot of things that have come uh, to fruition and all the stuff like that, I actually think that the pressure is, is squarely on Golden State to be able to win a title without KD because they did win the original title without KD, but to win it again without Kevin Durant kind of cement their legacy of we didn't we could have won multiple even without KD. Steph Curry doesn't have a finals MVP. I think that that's a a factor in this as well. And again, you turn on all the national reports are, this is a Curry legacy game series, right? This is a a Warriors legacy series. Absolutely nothing about it is saying, oh, the Celtics really need this one. Like if they don't win the title, then that's, you know, their legacy is tainted. No one's saying that about Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown yet. So here's my my preview for it. And a lot of people aren't going to like this, Evan. You're going to hate this, but this is the reality of this series. Marcus Smart is the X factor. Yeah. Marcus Smart is the fulcrum point of this series. You Steph Curry career. You know what his career field goal percentage is? In the regular season, I don't have regular season playoffs combined, but in the regular season, you know what his career field goal percentage is? 52. 47%. It's still very good, especially yeah. for a guy who shoots as many threes as he does. Yeah. 47%. You know his career field goal percentages when he's guarded by Marcus Smart? 37. 29%. Oh, my goodness. He goes from nearly 50 to – he goes from, from nearly half to less than a third. That's the series because the Celtics strategy – by the way, we want to make another comparison to the Patriots here in cross sports. Ime Udoka co-opted one of Belichick's tried and true traditions. Take away what the other team does best, right. force them to beat you with secondary options. They did it against Brooklyn. They lived in Kevin Durant's jersey. They doubled him. They beat the crap out of him. They forced him to the line. And they said, you can beat us, right, with even even Kyrie Irving they included. You can beat us with Kyrie Irving. You can beat us with um, Bruce Brown. You can beat us with whoever. You're not going to beat us with Kevin Durant. Milwaukee's a little different because Giannis is a different kind of player. But then they went back to it against the Heat. You can beat us with Gabe Vincent. You can beat us with Max Strews. You you can beat us with Victor Oladipo, who, by the way, should have played more in that series. I'm surprised Miami didn't do that. Yeah, that's that's going to be the game plan here is take away Steph Curry and you can beat us with whatever's left of Clay Thompson, who, by the way, has not been the same player since returning from that injury. You can beat us with Clay Thompson. You can beat us with Andrew Wiggins. You can beat us with uh, Gary Payton Jr. If he's back. Right. You're not going to beat us with Steph Curry. That's going to be the game plan. If they want to do that. Marcus Smart needs to be on his game. 
if he's yeah. healthy, I think he's up to it. If Marcus Smart is healthy, the Celtics have a real shot here. If Marcus Smart is banged up, if he's slow, if he has trouble moving, it could get a little ugly. Yeah, so, so you, you, we've heard Ty Lue in the past, who is obviously the coach of the of the Cavs when they won that title with yeah. LeBron against the Warriors, or actually, excuse me, when they, they lost to the KD Warriors as well. And uh, Ty Lue was, was talking about how he sent more attention or doubled or hedged a little bit more, blitzed a little bit more against Steph Curry than he did against Kevin Durant. And in that series, Kevin Durant ended up winning finals MVP because he had a lot of single coverage, right? He has, he had one-on-one to play all day long. So now the real question is for the Celtics, if they can find a way to force the ball out of Curry's hands, how nuts does Clay Thompson go? How nuts does Jordan Poole go? You know, some of the other guys around Steph Curry, I think Clay is obviously the biggest one just because he could get some open looks if you're if you're putting two guys on Steph or you're running two guys at Steph. Well, so that that's a little bit of a concern, but I like the Celtics' length and their ability to recover to Clay Thompson that they might be able to make up for that. But that that's my point is if Marcus Smart, that's not a double coverage stat, the 29%. That's Marcus Smart. Yeah. If Marcus Smart can give you that, well, then you can, then you can double Clay, and then both those guys are gone, and then that's that. That's how they've beat the Warriors in the past. Marcus Smart erases Steph Curry. They can put more attention on Clay Thompson in terms of combo defense, and that's how they've shut the Warriors down in the past. The key to the whole thing, I know people don't want to hear this. Oh, the key to the Celtics winning the NBA Finals, Evan, accept it, bask in it, enjoy it. The key to the Celtics winning the NBA Finals is Marcus Smart. And by the way, wait, wait, wait. can we can we finish for just preface this correctly? The key for the Celtics winning the title is Marcus Smart on the defensive end, right? Yes. Like if Marcus Smart. I think that the one thing that all of us that are a little bit skeptical of Marcus that get agitated by his game a little bit is when he goes on the other side of the of the court on offense, and he thinks that the, that he's Steph Curry. Right. And he starts jacking up threes. I'm not talking about the end of game seven because those were forced shots by the defense. Right. The defense was blitzing Tatum, getting the ball out of his hands, and they were inviting Marcus Smart to be the shooter. He had to take those shots. You were going to live and die with the open looks. And that was the way that it went, ended up being. Marcus Smart, play, if he plays the, the Draymond, right? He's, and Steve right. Kerr said that he's like a Draymond, but he's a guard instead of a, of a power forward or a center. If, he plays like that then I have no problem with Marcus Smart the problem I have with Marcus Smart is when you look at the box score at the end of the game and he's taking 20 shots in a game right that that's when I have issues with Marcus Smart when he plays that two-way game he's great he's exactly what they needed in that role but but okay so let me let me give you these numbers here Celtics Warriors head-to-head recent games that the Celtics have won last time they met back in March 11088 119-114 but then you have 111, 107. These are all Celtics wins. 119, 104, 105, 100, 128, 95, 92, 88. That's going back to 2017. I'll go back one more. 99, 86. Yeah. What do those all have in common? Low those score. are all relatively low scoring games. Yeah. And that's the, that. That's the idea. If it doesn't turn into a track meet, Marcus Smart doesn't have as many chances to do with that on the offensive end. Sure. Right. You know what I'm it saying? Just, like, it does feel like a series that they're going to have to grind it out, right? They're going to have to slow the pace down and try to make it as much a half court game as they possibly can. Because so, the Warriors get out in transition, those threes just start coming from everywhere. 
if if you're if you're if you can slow the Warriors down, if you can, Marcus Smart when he gets trigger happy, that's that's high scoring, high tempo games. Yeah, that's not the game the Celtics can play to win the series. So um, again, I'll say it again. The 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 turning point of the, like, and, and when I say key, Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown both need to have great series, obviously. Right. But I think when you look at it, Tatum, Curry, Brown, Thompson cancel each other out, right? More or less. I did. Yeah. Curry's better than than Tatum, but Tatum and Brown are two and three. I put Thompson at four, right? Those four are, I think, ultimately when you net them all out or a wash. Draymond Green isn't going to do to Jason Tatum what Marcus Smart has the potential to do to Steph Curry. That's what the series comes down to, to me. Based on past history, he can't. There's history of Marcus Smart doing it. Extensive history of Marcus Smart doing it. Draymond Green doesn't have that same kind of history against the Celtics. That's the series. Who takes away the star better? Is it Marcus Smart or is it Draymond Green? I'm going to put my money on Marcus Smart on that one 10 times out of 10. Alex, are you ready to make a prediction, or should we wait till Thursday to make a prediction? Let's wait till Thursday. Let's wait till th- I, yeah. I want to see how healthy Marcus Smart is. We're also we're also going to be on for the Q and A show right a couple hours. I would say right before Game One, but it's like six hours before Game One. Oh, yeah, it's a nine o'clock start. Yeah. Get the hell out. Whoever's making these schedules, Patriots four night games in a row, NBA Finals starting at nine o'clock. Get new schedule makers. Nobody wants this. Nobody asked for this. Stop, oh, the people, the people in San Francisco want no, it. No, stop catering to the West Coast. I was told, I, whatever happened to the East Coast bias? I liked the East Coast bias. Bring it back. I agree that the, that I wish it was a little bit more East Coast biasy. but when you're playing in San Francisco, like, people have to get off work. They have to get there. Like, you're not going to get – If you're like, not – If, if you're, you're tipping off at 5 off o'clock, work, Alex, then there's – No, 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 no. If you're not taking a day off of work for a finals game, you're not a real fan. Oh my Come God! On. You think uh, you, you know think both anybody of us wouldn't, wouldn't be able to do that? You think anybody so. in Boston is going to work next Friday? You think anybody's going to work? Anybody going to that game, especially, is going to work next Friday? Come on! All right, fair enough. But nine o'clock tip. So Alex and I will be on the live Q and A show to kill some of that time uh, before Game One of the NBA Finals on Thursday afternoon. You probably around four o'clock, like usual, on the Thursday show. We'll give our predictions for the NBA Finals at the end of the show with the series uh, about to tip off in a couple hours after that. And then next week, all three days, Patriots mandatory mini camp Tuesday through Thursday. We'll have coverage on CLNS. We'll have, Alex will have a coverage on 98.5 The Sports Hub. And we'll have podcasts for you on uh, all three days, or at least recapping all three days at some point, uh, to discuss what's going on at Patriots uh, mandatory minicamp. So next week, to me, as much as it's fun to go out there with these OTAs and everything, Alex, next week is if things happen next week, you can really think that those things are real, right? The full squad yeah. is there. Uh, that's really the the start of uh, what's going to happen for the Patriots, coaching-wise, schematic-wise, roster battles, all that kind of stuff. So uh, we'll see you guys on Thursday. We'll answer all, all your Patriots questions, and then we'll see you guys next week for mandatory minicamp. So it should be fun down there at Gillette next week. But until next time, signing off for Alex Barth, I'm Evan Lazar. Thanks for watching, everybody. Go Celtics. We'll see you guys Thursday.